Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> okay, so where we left off, Preston Sturgis, right? Yep. Big hit on Broadway. Married, divorced, thrown into the arms of Hollywood by the Great Depression. Got to Hollywood, making a thousand bucks a week. Plus, he got a big chunk of change for selling Strictly Dishonorable, his big hit play to the movies, within about a year or two of having that play be on Broadway. So he's now rolling in dough. But he only planned to be at Hollywood for two years. He ended up staying 20 years. And it became the golden handcuff kind of deal. Uh, He's making so much money, and he spent it, and he spent it, and he spent it, so he had to make more money and keep making money in order to keep up with the spending. And what we see here is really a, a key facet of his personality and his behavior in that he's got vast, vast energy, and at the same time, it's disorganized energy. It's very, he's frenetic. So he gets to Hollywood, and now he's able to write. He's, he does a lot of writing, but his writing, he would pace while he wrote. So what he ended up doing was he hired a secretary, and that woman, usually, pretty mm-hmm. much a woman, on a typewriter would type while he talked. So, and these are not electric typewriters either. So she, you know, rat-a-tat-tat. And he would pace while he wrote. And he didn't, he wanted to just start working whenever he felt like working. He didn't have, like, set, like, starting at 8 o'clock and going till whatever. So this poor woman, he would have them live at his house so that they would be ready on call. And usually it would be after he went out to the the cafes and the bars and hung out and came home and had a bunch of drinks and then he would start to work midnight one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and he didn't like to be alone he was somebody he always had to have his stooges around him his, his posse his cohort uh, so there would just be men just like sitting around but they had to be attentive to him so they, they were just sitting around but they like were like his wives like his wives exactly he, ha- he had to have this um but when he would walk, he would talk the dialogue. He was, he was amazingly productive. For example, you know, like some writers uh, might sit down and they write a page or two of dialogue a day, you know, craft and hone it. And he would just pour it out. So like in one day's work, he could pour out 30 pages of dialogue. Wow. I know, it was amazing. I mean, I'm sure some of that had to be cut or refined, but that is an amazing productivity. But you can hear it in the dialogue in his movies, can't you? The way it just flows, the way it just, mm-hmm. you know... It's really, really amazing. But I said he didn't like being alone at all, and he didn't like the piecework kind of um, system that, that the studio had created because the studios wanted to keep absolute control. They didn't want their stars to have control. They weren't going to give anybody script approval. Um, the stars really had to fight really hard to get approval for director or, or not to have to work in films that they didn't want to work in. So they basically saw you as this work unit that they wanted to plug you in wherever they wanted to plug you in. And and if they didn't want to build you up anymore, they want to get rid of you, they, they just wanted to toss you away. I mean, it really was a nasty kind of capitalist system. Same thing with writers. And with writers, because they didn't have the visibility to the public, oftentimes a writer didn't have the, um, the protection, the leverage. Yeah, of oh, people wanted to see Charlie Chaplin, and they only wanted to see Charlie Chaplin, that type of thing. Well, Chaplin also, along with Pickford, were very smart because they just created their own production company. So yeah. that was another way to do it. But you had to be really, really big and have a lot of money to do that. So anyway. 
Uh, he hated that because basically they would say, oh, we need a scene between a man and a woman, blah, blah, blah. Or here's a script, write some dialogue. And then they would give that script to somebody else and that somebody else would rewrite what they wanted to rewrite. And then they'd give it to another person. Or they'd say, you know, give us a treatment. They wouldn't say, if he was trying to get a job at a studio writing, uh, they wouldn't say, oh, give us a script. They'd say, give us a treatment. So basically you'd outline a story. And they'd say, okay, we'll buy that from you. And then they would give the treatment to a different writer and have them write it up. And Sturgis wanted to be soup to nuts, A to Z. He wrote it. He's got control over it. And then when he would see his the scripts that he worked on being turned over to a director who he felt was not doing it justice, he totally... Um, he, 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 he Took what, it as an affront. One of the rare times in his life where he actually is able to hold his tongue, didn't bring it up, didn't fight. One of the few times he was able to act in his own interest. But basically he um, bounced around from studio to studio at this point because he didn't really like the system. And so he was a mistreperous dude. I don't know, maybe it's because he didn't go to school and he didn't learn, he wasn't properly socialized. <laughs> but he just like couldn't get along with authority at all. And I mean, I, I feel it. I feel you, you know, but again, there is a system and it's not going to work if you can just do whatever, you know, as well. Right. And there are some people that are better at manipulating a system in their favor and other people that just bash their heads against it. Well, compare, compare and contrast Frank Capra. Frank Capra, he's Mr. Smith went to Washington, you know. Yeah. Mr. Deeds went to town. He was very successful and he put his stamp on his pictures and he was a quality director and he was able to figure out the system and work within the system. He had much more control and self-discipline over himself, whereas Preston Sturgis didn't. And when he, at some point he was just gonna balk, he was just gonna kick over the traces. So he lost a lot of jobs. He pretty much had started to run out of studios to go to and it was really, really tough. And at the same time, he was marrying wife number two and wife number two was also an extremely rich woman. Uh, her name was Eleanor Hutton, and she was definitely a member of the 1%, mm. no question. She was the niece of a guy named E.F. Hutton, and I don't know if you've ever heard of E.F. Hutton. It's one of the most famous, uh, richest investment companies. Okay. And they used to have commercials on TV. When E.F. Hutton talks, everyone listens. <laughs> And that was a big commercial thing when I big commercials on TV when I was a kid. But anyway, it was a big investment company. And what's even more important is she she was the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post, who owned and ran General Foods. Oh wow! Yeah. I mean, that's huge. That's too mega. Yeah. yeah, granddaughter of the founder of of. Uh, wow. Um, and uh, so he he was thirty one. She was twenty. So he's sticking at that age range right there. And basically, they lived in a really really fancy posh place. A very very rich he's trying to you know make it and everything but what happens is this kind of elides into when he moved from New York to Hollywood so it's kind of in that period it isn't all while he's in Hollywood that this happens but basically after two years she just got the fed up so she leaves because he was demanding and unappreciative you know and basically he was really pretty much oddly a misogynist in certain ways again his writing doesn't show this but um, he would just denigrate his wife's intellect, their contributions. They weren't supposed to talk. They were supposed to be like children, you know, uh, yeah. seen but not heard, but only seen when you wanted them to be seen. And this woman was, she was used to the high life. She was used to the best of things. And so anyway, she just, two years and she had it. 
she was out of there. So she had the marriage annulled. Yeah. Um, how did that work? Did she have to prove that they hadn't slept together or? Uh, you know, I don't understand the annulled thing either. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I, I think, you know, like if you were mar- married when you were underage since she was 20, mm. maybe you could have, you could have an annulled said, well, you never, never really were married. Interesting. So I wasn't. I mean, nobody questioned that they had had sex. Yeah. So that wasn't. It wasn't like, oh, this was never consummated. So yeah, and her family definitely. They, they ended up being fine with her marrying him, and then fine with her not being married to him anymore. So that didn't last very long. So again, the 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 pattern persists. But he does get to Hollywood, and he's able to make his own money. And uh, like I said, he's trying to sell a screenplay. So he writes this screenplay called The Power and the Glory. And basically, it was based on her grandfather, C.W. Post. Uh, Basically, of a guy who had everything in the world. He went from, you know, zero to 100 million. Apparently, you know, all his dreams were fulfilled, and he ended up committing suicide. And this is a theme for for, um, Sturgis, is success. What it takes to become a success, what you give up to become a success, what it costs, and ultimately how that material success is not fulfilling, which is so funny because he pursued material success and he spent so much money and he loves stuff and cars and houses and, and, and the high life. And yet on some level, the artist in him could see this. Yeah. He has an interesting level of like self-awareness and self-unawareness at the same time. Like, he keeps acting out these things and everything, but some of his films are pretty revealing. Yeah. Yeah. They are. He wrote the full screenplay, not a treatment, because he figured out, well, that's a way to prevent getting them to take control of this. And he finally got them to produce it. But it was such a flippin' bummer that it actually did very well in Manhattan. And we we didn't watch this one, because he didn't direct it, because we really stuck to his directorial career, um, because he wrote a lot of screenplays. But anyway... This got produced, It uh, the film was made, it bombed financially, though it got good reviews and was popular and made money in Manhattan. Interesting. It's often yeah. the case, right? Yeah, it was more niche. <laughs> so basically that's what the the studio took that as an excuse to go, no more no more solo screenplays, no more of get, giving you sole credit on anything. We're not going to let you do, do that anymore. So uh, he just kept going with that, making money, bouncing from studio to studio, being a script doctor. And so a few of the things he spent his money on, he bought this, this house and he had the house redone and a lot of construction done on it. So it was just exactly what he wanted, the, the perfect house and a screening room and pool and, you know, just really this fantastic house. He also created a machine shop mm. where they fabric could fabricate his inventions. So he had employees and he would show up when he wanted to and he would create engines and he invented engines and he made things and they they put them together for him. In fact, he made his yacht there. He built his yacht huh. at the machine shop. Interesting. Yeah, he built his own yacht. Uh, amazing. But he never followed up any of the patents. He didn't have the stick to it. So really it ended up being a hobby. 
Although when the war came, when the war eventually came, he did get a, a small government contract and did make some money that way. Hmm. And then the other thing that he uh, was big into is he really wanted the Manhattan nightlife. He missed it because Hollywood was still a small place. Uh, had a, like the Brown Derby, had a couple restaurants that were pretty successful that people went to, but it didn't have that clubby, nightclubby kind of place. So he, after a couple of different uh, stops and starts and difficulties with partners and so forth, he ended up opening a place he called The Players, and that was his restaurant. And it was supposed to be a three-tier restaurant where like at the bottom level, it was just sort of like a real casual drive-in, and then there was like a a mid-level dining room and at the top it was like a fancy club and dinner club and dancing and a band and all kinds of stuff so you could these three different experiences going at once and he just he was constantly redecorating it and he just poured money into it right and left it did end up being successful and it made money but he lost money because he spent so much he had a big table people would come he'd have drinks and meals and you know lording it like a king he went there like every night and a big time partier and he had the best music and and he didn't was not a good manager which is odd because he did really well when he was young and did the house of deste but he just would drop in when he wanted to and he didn't pay attention and his employees just stole him blind apparently they'd take out cases of liquor, uh, sides of beef, I mean, money, just, I mean, they were just hand over fist stealing from him. And and his, his maitre d' or manager, I don't know exactly what the guy's title was, but who he had brought in, who he trusted, he told him this was happening, and he's like, ah, you know, I don't want to bother with it. In fact, he even had this, uh, this guy who was his personal barber, and so now that he's this rich guy, he doesn't go to the barber shop, right? Right. So he builds a shop within the restaurant <laughs> complex for the barber. So the, so the barber has this little barber shop all his own. And and so he and he drank a lot, drank all the time. And we'll see just could be taken for granted that when his career was going poorly, he drank more. Right. And so he ultimately became quite an alcoholic. So essentially he kept trying to get his solo scripts accepted by the studio, and ultimately, very early on, he decided he wanted to become a writer-director, which was really, really unusual. Unless you were someone like, who had your own production company, like a Chaplin or Pickford, there weren't that many. Sturgis kind of paved the way for like a Billy Wilder, who did Some Like It Hot, and those films, he became a quintessential writer-director, great films. He hadn't come on the scene yet as a writer-director, he was just a writer, and so, Sturgis is kind of the one who broke that ice with the studios, getting that to happen. Mm. And so anyway, the studio didn't want to accept his solo scripts at all, much less make him a director. And they really had some problems with the way he wrote because it was unique and it was special. and They didn't kind of get it because he was bringing some new elements into it because of his background in high culture and, and bringing all these different levels together. For example... Um, they just really thought his stories were a problem because they were they were kind of structurally or thematically innovative, not linear, circling back around. Yeah, not chron- not always chronological or the themes. It's sort of like you see these themes like what we'll see later in uh, Palm Beach Story. They really had trouble with that one yeah. about a woman who leaves her husband for his own good because he's not going to be successful with her around and she's very beautiful. So. The point of it is, is how far can she get with her beauty alone? 
And can she get someone to give him the money because they're entranced with her beauty? And of course, implied is that she's sleeping with him, but you know. Or for example, later on, there was uh, a film called The Miracle at Morgan's Creek about a woman who essentially goes out on a toot with a bunch of sailors, gets super drunk, goes blackout drunk, sleeps with one of them. And army, army guys. Was it army? Okay, army guys. And comes back and she finds out she's pregnant and she doesn't, she doesn't know who it was. Right. She didn't even know his name. Right. I mean, that's actually a big theme in a lot of his films is sort of like a transgressive, I guess, depiction of like sexual liberation or just casual sexuality. Right, right, yeah. exactly. And that's what they had trouble with in the, the being so thematically innovative and they just couldn't, just couldn't get that. And then also, they also didn't understand the mixed tones, which is there would be dramas with, sometimes there would be comic relief, as they called it, or it's a comedy. But he had equal measures within his films, like in Sullivan's Travels, particularly of the very dark, the very dramatic, tragic, and the very, very funny and, and satiric yeah. at the same time. They just didn't know what to do with that. That's another piece where the Coen brothers really have taken that and run with it even yeah. further. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course today, now we love it when the tones are balanced and well mixed, and, which is Sturgis was good at that. He was really, really good at that. So finally, when he got to, uh, Par- he was working at Paramount, and finally he kind of like, he just kept at it, and he got them to direct a screenplay that he wrote, finally. Basically, it was, it was a B-movie, so it wasn't that expensive, so they're like, well, okay. And they liked the script. It's called, uh, ultimately, they called it The Great McGinty. That wasn't what it was called at first. So in 1940, The Great McGinty, he uh, says, okay, I'll sell you the script for $10, if you'll let me direct. Now, he had already written this script back in 1932. Mm. So eight years earlier, he'd written the script. It was called The Vagrant, and it was just rejected by everybody. Mm. He kept doing this. He kept pulling old scripts out of his drawer and going, here, take this one. Nice. Now, doubtless, they they didn't say, but doubtless, I would imagine he read them again and maybe polished them up or something, (laughs) possibly. I don't know. So he did revise The Vagrant, and he, he ended up filming it and directing it, which we've seen. They were, they were worried about it because the film was about this vagrant who comes into town, and he ends up working his way up the ladder to becoming governor of the state. But he works his way up to being governor by participating in, in the voter fraud political machine, but then also being like a goon that takes protection money for the local mob and then works his way up that way. Right. He does all the dirty work underneath it. Right. And totally, so it's a political satire, essentially, and a dark one, too. The studios, their take was, oh, people don't want to see movies about politics. You know, uh, students had a very jaded and narrow vision of what people were interested in and willing to see. Uh, who knows? possibly people out on the farms, they didn't need to see that stuff. They weren't interested because they didn't see many movies and life was hard enough. Right. You know, but anyway, people did like movies. So while he was getting an opportunity to do this, he was with his third wife at this point. And this is the wife where he had his kids with, well, actually he had three children. He had one, his first son with this wife. And she stuck with him for 10 years, which was really amazing to me. Because his same patterns kicked in. So they married, they had, they had this beautiful relationship. And then when he started working, he was very nervous, very insecure. And he made her sit with him all the time. I mean, all the time. In meetings, when he was writing, she was just supposed to sit there. 
and be just be there. Ugh, I don't get it. And he kept saying he trusted her and her opinion and all this. And I'm not saying he didn't ask her opinion from time to time, but she was supposed to be just right there. I just can't believe it. And she's just so bored. Like he, when he's doing casting, when he's in his office hanging out, she's just supposed to be sitting there in the background. And she's just bored out of her mind, as I said. Just, ugh. But, you know, she just struggled with it for a long time. Not for 10 years. And she had her kid. No, thank you. I know. No thanks. So anyway, since this was his first film, he was very nervous about getting in there directing. He got a cameraman, and the cameraman was very experienced and didn't agree with him. And so there was some strife going on there. So the next time he did a film, he made sure he got somebody who was, like, simpatico with him. And he had been given this advice that, since he's filming at Paramount, he should get contract players to be his uh, kind of stock company so that he just had people he knew he could rely on. They Basically, they did the same thing in every movie. It was essentially the same characters that they played. And so he had a bunch of people like Franklin Pangborn, if you're familiar with him. I love Franklin Pangborn. But the main one was William Demarest. He was a gruff, old salty guy and always gruff and all that kind of thing and William Demarest if any of you are older and you ever saw the tv series My Three Sons starring Fred McMurray Uncle Charlie is William Demarest which is how I knew him originally from this tv show of my childhood so he gets these people in here and he cast as his star Brian Donlevy Donlevy is very experienced so Sturgis was really pretty scared to work with him because he thought, oh, is he going to buck me? Is he going to you know, try to take over or resist? And apparently Don Levy was fine. You know, he came in with a mustache, like a, an Errol Flynn mustache, and Preston Sturgis like slapping his head. And he's so worried about going in to talk to him about it because you can't have that mustache. So he basically asked him to shave off the mustache. He goes, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> very easy. Nice. What do you think of Brian Don Levy? I liked him. I thought he was very good in this role because he, he first appears in like the big ratty coat and like kind of like he's a drifter and jaded and stuff and then he works his way up to being the governor but he ends up actually kind of caring i don't know i thought he did a great job and he's actually kind of an attractive guy he's got beautiful eyes Mm. yeah he's one of those those men that i look at and go he's not really like attractive in a standard way he's not really like particularly good looking but He's got these eyes that it's like you would expect them to be on a really beautiful woman. Just really these beautiful eyes, I thought. But he was a, if you really look at him, he is kind of a, got a weird shape. So apparently he would come in and he put on a really super tight girdle, like uh. a really, really, really tight uh, corset. Mm-hmm. And he put in his false teeth and he would put on his toupee. <laughs> and then he would get, then when he wore jackets, they would have like really padded shoulders because he had this like really kind of pear-shaped body. I see. And it's funny because if you, there are other scenes where he's just wearing a shirt. Yeah. And you can kind of see it. Huh. I didn't notice at the time. Cause it yeah, I didn't out, really look for it because stuff is going on. He kind of, he strikes me as a little bit Orson Welles-ish. Oh, really? In what way? Just the, the physicality with the, maybe it's the corset and the big chest and kind of like. Oh, kind of Maybe bulk- it might bulky. also be the political content of the movie where. Oh, because of Kane? Yeah. Okay. Um, So, uh, yeah, so he starred in it and, yeah, did a great job. The script is fine and it is a B-movie, really. And so it doesn't have, like, real substance to it. It doesn't feel weighty. Yeah. Even though the subject matter is weighty. 
And it's interesting. So you said it, it might be a little bit inspired by or loosely yeah. based off of Huey Long. It, it's hard to get away from Huey Long at this period. Huey Long uh, was a governor of Louisiana, a populist. Uh, he was really an interesting guy. He was very corrupt in many ways. He a lot of payola, a lot of uh, palm greasing, very po- political. And obviously he must have taken some for himself, but he never, it wasn't like it was just for him to line his pockets. He, but he knew that in order to get roads built and schools built and so on and so forth, he had to do the politics. And there was just payola. You had to pay people off or it wasn't going to happen. He had to get the votes or it wasn't going to happen. And so on one hand, he did an enormous amount of good. And in the uh, equal amount, he was very corrupt and so forth. And he ended up being assassinated uh, before this movie came out. He had been assassinated. But he was a huge national figure, and, and FDR was very worried, uh, FDR being Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, was very worried that he would be unseated for the presidency by Huey Long. Huey Long was a real contender. He was a real populist, and he was much more to the left than FDR because FDR was really getting a lot of flack and a lot of pushback on his pro- so his socialist programs. Right to end the depression and Long was even more to the left than he was. So Long ended up being assassinated by a dentist, oddly enough. (laughs) But anyway, this character, the great McGinty, Long came up from being an illiterate, poor boy and worked his way up and became governor and this is what happened with McGinty. And it's interesting because McGinty, he's right at the top and then he has, as you were saying, he has a soul searching moment his downfall is actually, or sort of his quote-unquote downfall, yeah. is his um, this woman that he's in love with who he marries. And then she is pushing him to clean up his act, basically, and stop being a corrupt politician. Yeah, and so then he has this moment, and that becomes when... The machine pushes back, and they, yeah. they oust him. They eject him from his seat as a governor by creating a scandal. And he, he leaves in, in uh, shame. Actually, he has to flee the country or he's going to go to jail. And so he's down in Mexico tending bar. At the end of the movie, which is an interesting ending too, right? Because, and a beginning and ending. Right. And it doesn't follow a conventional sort of like all's well or, you know, a public enemy. Uh, or is it all's well? That's the thing. It's the, the ambiguity in how you want to interpret it. Because I take that as a happy ending. I think it's a realistically happy ending. I mean, like a... A Hollywood ending, right? Like, it doesn't have necessarily a traditional Hollywood It's, it's not like Mr. Smith went to Washington. Yeah, exactly. Goes to Washington. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's true. It's uh, also, I guess we should mention the, the role of the, the woman in this film. She's still fairly secondary, but it's she's an interesting character in that she loves him and she's his secretary, and he decides he needs to marry in order to get the governor's seat. It's part of the image. And so he wants to marry, and they have a business deal. He's basically like... He, he doesn't want to marry, and she proposes it. She's like, well, what if I married you? Basically, she has two children. She's a widow, has two children, and he falls in love with these children. Really, more than the wife, it's the purity of the children and how it touches his heart, and he wants to make the world a better place. And, of course, she's also urging him, and, and he ends up falling for her and appreciating her. So she's a person. She's a person. She's not just this female plot device she doesn't take center stage it isn't her story um so it was that was all right i mean that was i i I didn't find her as i find often find female characters to be annoying and it's not their fault it's the way they're written as they would say about jessica rabbit 
I also just think that she's a very unusual female character in her pragmatism and practicality around the idea of marriage and things like that. Um, you don't really see that depicted because in the movies it's almost always like I, either the woman is like a some kind of fallen woman or it's all about getting married and like... Well, you know. they also hint at that this is an arrangement. I mean, mm-hmm. they say that. So they're not sleeping together. Right. And he's got his separate life, and she's got her separate life, and she's got this boyfriend. Now, of course, they kind of have to say, well, of course, they're not sleeping together. She's not sleeping right. with any other men. But, in fact, the subtext is, you know, she's free to have her relationships with other men. Mm-hmm. And then it only becomes an issue when... He has feelings for her and then right. becomes jealous. Yeah, and then he's like, I want you to be my wife. And then they live together. Yeah. As a regular couple. Right. Because she does love him. I mean, the reason she, she proposes marriage is because she loves him and wants to help him. So what this what the shockeroo of this is for the studio and for everybody is that this movie won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. First year that they had Best Original Screenplay. Wow. So it's the, the first Best Original Screenplay. Movie, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it won an Oscar. And it was a big hit, of course, which is the more important thing for the students, uh, is that it had, it was making money. Financial, yeah. Made a lot of money, and they're like, oh, okay. So he finished the movie, which is one of the rare times he'll do this, uh, the first few times he directs the movie, which shows that that Sturgis could discipline himself when he wanted to and was motivated to. When he wanted to, he could finish his movie on time. Right. Which he did. He finished on time and under budget. And um, so that was great, too. And um, also, he began promoting himself as this personality. He was a big personality. And so he would do stuff like he would wear a a red fez on set. He would ride a unicycle carrying a swagger stick. Uh, (laughs) He would wear a bowler hat around. And uh, basically what happened was he started out by imitating Cecil B. DeMille who was the big director at Paramount. I mean, Cecil B. DeMille did the great epics, like the Ten Commandments, and he would be on set and he would wear jodhpurs and carry a swagger stick and sit up in this crane and direct people. And he was very grand. And, oh, he's such a pill. I cannot stand Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> I, I, like, I like watching his movies. They're way over the top and yeah. corny, but um, I do, uh, I, just as a person, he's like, Ugh. So Sturgis got a table in the, co- the studio commissary opposite Cecil B. DeMille's table. And he would sit there and he would hold court opposite. But, so he just really set himself up on purpose as sort of the, the I'm the new guy coming in, I'm going to knock you off the, the mountaintop. And he would do all, all these crazy things, as I said. And Barbara Stanwyck, when she worked with him, said the set was like a carnival. Anybody could come anytime they wanted, come and go, visitors, whoever, newspaper people. He didn't care. He'd never come. He never had drinks. They sat around his office. He had a bar in his office. And, you know, it was just like crazy times. But the first few times, he even with that carnival atmosphere, he was able to be disciplined with his filmmaking. It does show that he could do it. Once this, uh, this film started getting out there, he, he did promote it, but he also started writing his next film right away. And he tried to push it through Paramount because he knew that he needed to build momentum. Momentum was starting to build, and he didn't want to let it subside in any way, especially uh, with The Great McGinty. He didn't know how successful it was going to be. Right. So, and he didn't know he was going to get that Oscar. And same thing with the next one. So whenever he, things were going well, he would really push. He would try to push the next project and the next project as fast as he could so that... You know, he'd always have something in the can ready to go. 
If that was a flop, then the next thing that he already did could be a success. So the next one he did, which is so interesting, is called A Christmas in July. This is also 1940s. I'm saying he's really pushing these things through. And Christmas in July was one that we really liked really well. That's one of the ones we put on our top three, right? Yep. And it's so interesting about that. He had written a three-act play called A Cup of Coffee, and he tried to get it produced. He tried to get this uh, produced as a three-act play in Broadway, no takers. Mostly it didn't have, it was dialogue. It didn't have a lot of action. It didn't have, it didn't have a complex plot. It's a very simple story. It was mostly a joke. And then he tried to sell it when he came to Hollywood, no, no takers. So now that he was very successful, he reaches in his drawer and he pulls out a cup of coffee. And they tried to name it various things, but it ended up being called Christmas in July. It's a better title. Yeah. So I like this one a lot, especially because I thought it was, yeah, just kind of quirky. Um, and the, the basic plot is that there's this young man and woman who are in love and they want to get married, but he doesn't want to marry because he doesn't have any money and he feels like he can't support her as his wife. He works for a, a coffee company and then the rival coffee company has a competition on the radio for uh, a jingle and you can win $25,000, which then, well, given that $1,000 is $16,000, is a lot of money. A lot. Really a lot of money. You can buy a house, you can buy a car. I mean, he's talking about buying a house for his mother and a house for them and a car and, you know, which they could do on that, that kind of money at that point. And these jingle contests were actually very common at the time. In fact, there's a, another film called The Contest Winner of Independence, Ohio, I think it's called. And it's about people writing jingles and mottos for contests and winning like lots of money and washing machines and food and all kinds of stuff. It was a very big thing for a while, for a long time, actually, into the 60s. So anyway, he writes into this jingle contest Turns out he's not very funny and it's not a very good slogan, but his coworkers decide to play a prank on him where they fabricate that he has one and they place a prank phone call and he's like, oh my God, I won the contest. I'm going to have $25,000. And he jumps on the desk and creates a huge scene. And, but everybody believes it because he believes it. Right, right. Because he's been, he's been notified. And what's really funny is, we should say what the slogan is because I think it's hilarious. If you can't sleep at night, it's not the coffee. It's the bunk. <laughs> and then he has to explain it to everybody. Yeah. Do you think we need to explain it? Because you know how coffee can keep you up at night because of the caffeine after you drink and it. And he says that scientifically been proven that it doesn't. Right. <laughs> so it's not the coffee, it's the bunk, aka bed. Yeah. Yeah. And he, but he has to explain it to everybody. And they're all like, uh, even his, his fiance is kind of like, yeah, okay. okay, great, honey. And so he ends up, because he's like now this big success, at first the bosses are like, you're creating a scene, we're going to fire you. And then they're like, oh my God, we should give this young man an office. And so he gets an office. And then he goes to the department store. And he well, no, he goes, he goes to right. collect his check. And when he goes in there, uh, what's, what's happened is, is that the committee that's supposed to decide who wins is deadlocked. And so they're shut away in a room. And the owner, J.B. Baxter of, of the rival coffee company, he doesn't know... He's been in there trying to get them to decide. So, so this young man comes in and says, hey, I won. He goes, wait a minute, why didn't anybody tell me? And, and, and he can't get in touch with anybody on the committee. So he figures, well, he got this message. Yeah. So he writes him a check for $25,000 and he gives it to him. And then our young hero goes, it's, very, it's actually a very sweet scene. He goes with his fiancée with the check and he shows it to the department store. Now, this is the day before they had credit cards. 
if you had a credit card, basically you didn't have a credit card, you had an account and at a specific store. So you go into whatever store it was and you'd say, put it on my account. And they, you know, they would know it was you or you have identification and they would put an account and bill you. So the store itself carried an account and basically it was like a credit uh, deal. Uh, so there were no credit cards. So basically he goes in and he shows the check. They call up the company. The company says, yeah, that check is good. That's our check. And they go, oh, okay, buy whatever you want. They're thrilled. He buys the entire toy department. His mother is so cute. She wants a pullout, a convertible sofa that will turn into a bed. And so they get one that has a crank on it mm-hmm. and it cranks out. I mean, it's so old style, so funny. And he, so he buys a present for every single person in his neighborhood. He gets this little merry-go-round. He gets the ice cream truck to come all prepaid and he drives it in the neighborhood. So it, the whole place becomes like a carnival of people shouting, moving. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious. And it's really like, it's like that low-class neighborhood solidarity where he knows all of the kids and what they like and they're handing out packages and everybody's kind of poor and they're all, but they're all thrilled for him. And that's the Christmas in July part. Yeah, and he's passing out turkeys and hams and giving his mother the, the, the couch and um, it just, you know, he's thrilled and he buys this diamond ring for his fiancée so they can get married. Now they're really going to get married and everything is great. Well... In the meantime, the committee has told J.B. Baxter that they chose a different slogan, I guess. It was a terrible slogan. It's like, it's the best! Yeah. Or something like that. It's just really <laughs> terrible. So they go, and they go to the neighborhood, and they grab the check back, tear it up, um, tell, say that he's being a fraud, and blah, blah, blah. And so the department store comes, and they're like all really mad. But then the the neighborhood revolt and starts a giant food fight, and the, and the big you know owner of the company gets splattered in ice cream and hit in the face oh no fish. I, I was wrong i was wrong no in the meantime he finds out that his committee has not decided yet right that's right but nine people all want that the really uh, it's the best and there's one guy who wants this other slogan that they never say what it is right and that's william demarest by the way bringing him up again Basically, then what happens is, is then he gets in trouble and he loses the job that they had given him and he's just like on the street, basically. And then what happens is the committee decides and William Demarest was so adamant that they were going to stay there forever. They finally all said, okay, fine, have it your way. We just want to get out of here. And so the winning slogan is... Of course, it's not the, the coffee, coffee, it's, it's the, the bunk. bunk. <laughs> which, is the, which is the little twist. And that's what... Um, Sturgis does. He puts these little twists in the the plot. Almost all of his films have this little little unexpected thing that happens, and I thought that that was very very cute. And then of course everything is happy. And and so the the theme there is that it's sort of a satire about various things, but the corporate the corporate American life. One of the themes you see in Preston Sturgis's comedies a lot is how to con a system basically. And how most of his heroes are naive and unassuming and well-intentioned, but they believe something or they get roped into something. And then a whole system will accommodate that. It basically, if you have enough confidence and like enough people saying... <laughs> well, actually, it's, the system is built on inefficiency and ineptitude. Somebody comes in with this confidence. Well, basically, um, he gets offered this job with an office and a huge raise and all this stuff because he won the contest that the competitor... Mm-hmm. Had. When he loses the job, he says, yeah, but my ideas were good an hour ago. What, they, they've got to be good. And the owner says, the problem is I inherited my position. 
that's the problem. I can't trust my own judgment. Yeah. I, I, I hired you because the, the competitor said you were good, and now you haven't, you didn't win. So that's the other piece of it. It's not just conning the system, but sort of the arbitrariness of anything and what wealth begets wealth and things like that. Well, just how stupid people of the 1% are. That too. Is that they're riding on their money and that money insulates them. And so they don't have to be efficient. They don't have to be good at their jobs. That kind of thing. So I think that's another aspect of it too. Yeah. I mean, certainly with J.B. Baxter it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very funny. And Sturgis likes these names. He likes these multi-syllabic names, like Bill Docker. It is a funny name. So I really think that's a, a good film, and it's really worth, worth seeing. It's light. It's short. The star is Dick Powell, who plays the young man. And Dick Powell, if you like old movies, you would have seen him in 42nd Street and some of the Gold Digger movies. Uh, he started out as the tenor ingenue um, male, and uh, now he's growing into sort of um, he doesn't sing anymore, but he does comedy and kind of light stuff. And then his next iteration, as he moves into the 40s uh, and he gets older, he becomes a hard-boiled, tough guy. And That's then he, so interesting. We should watch some of those. I don't think I've seen them. Yeah, they're, they're pretty good. And, then, and he also uh, creates the Dick Powell Theater, so he becomes a pioneer in television. So that's a hit. That does well. Our Boys on a Roll. First A movie. Huge, huge hit. Big, big hit. Well-deserved, 1941, The Lady Eve. I have to say, oddly enough, Sullivan's Travels, which is his next film, is very good, and I love it. But to me, The Lady Eve is the perfect movie. I love this movie so much. It stars Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. Essentially, this is another of his rejected stories. It's called The Two Bad Hats. (laughs) Another title change for the better. Yeah, Yeah, really. And he directed this with a much more aplomb, much more self-assurance. He really brought all of his tools to bear. I think this is the most solidly cohesive film that he did. Sullivan's Travels, I do feel a little bit of the disconnect in the tone. Not for the bad, I think that's fine. But this one, it's, it's very homogenous. And it really has to do with sexual politics. Basically, he really hated art as I said he hated high art because of the way it was forced on him as a child but he absorbed it through his pores and it really came out and so he really had uh, uh, this sort of snobbery that dialogue is you know on one hand that a pratfall is better than dialogue so he had a snobbery kind of against dialogue but he was a master dialogue writer and he does so much of it but there but the Lady Eve shows the way he brings dialogue and pratfalls together Henry Fonda is falling down, you wouldn't believe it, is falling down all the time, getting clonked on the head. All kinds of stuff is happening in this film that's just crazy, ridiculous physical comedy, but at the same time, it's so technically sophisticated, and the shots he does are just just a marvel, I think. They're wonderful. He really steps up his cinematography, like Christmas in July was a little bit more dynamic than The Great McGinty, but then this film is really next level with that. It absolutely is. Well, first of all, Barbara Stanwyck plays a grifter. She goes around with her father on ships where, you know, these cruise ships where rich people cruise. 
and they pretend that they're part of the 1% and they hang out and then they end up getting in these card games and they end up taking these suckers for a bunch of money. It's what they do. This is something that people did do and so the, the boat detective is always on the lookout for these kind of people. And so Henry Fonda has been up the Amazon, I guess. He's an heir to a large fortune. Absolutely. Uh, He's kind of like the uh, Eleanor Hutton of this, uh, except he's male. And so he's up there, uh, and he's all interested in reptiles, and hence the Lady Eve, the snake, the apple. And he's coming back to civilization after some years, all alone, no women, in the jungle. And who does he meet? But this gorgeous, smart, oh my gosh, she just, she just runs circles around him. And there's this one great scene where they know that every woman on the boat is going to be after him because he's so good looking. This is Henry Fonda when he never was more beautiful. Yeah, he's really just a gorgeous man. Gorgeous Very man. Very pretty. Yeah. yeah. And so he's he... got glasses, which I like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so he's on this boat and he's oblivious. But all the young women want him. All the mothers want him to meet their, <laughs> to be interested in their daughters. And so she, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, sits in the dining room and she does a running commentary on what's going on with him. Like, oh, she's walking by. Oops, she dropped her handkerchief. Oh, that's an old one. Oh, didn't notice. Like, oh, trying to hide her embarrassment. So she's got this mirror, this compact mirror. And in the mirror, you can see what she's looking at in the reflection which is just amazing. And then the first uh, first real pratfall happens where, okay, now she's going to get him because they're going to con him. So he's walking and she sticks her foot out and trips him and he just falls flat on his face. And then she blames him for breaking the strap on her shoe. Right. <laughs> so it's that kind of manipulation. And it's so witty. And apparently Stanwyck and Sturgis got along beautifully. She really admired him. He admired her. I got along okay with Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda was a, a person who was very, very introverted mm. and uh, hard to know. But they got along They got along really, you know, he got along well in the picture. And he had a stock company, so William Demarest is here. And William Demarest does note that he wasn't in the stock company because he was like buddies with Preston Sturgis. He, he really didn't like the way Sturgis treated the actors. It's like, well, what he said was, with the big stars, he was careful about what he said. But with the stock company, he didn't give a shit. So he would berate them. He would demean them. He would yell at them. But with the stars, he was just like so nice and gentle and his voice and taking their time and all that kind of stuff. But this film was, um, it really plays with the sexual politics in that she, Barbara Stanwyck, her con woman, of course, we know what's going to happen. She's going to fall in love with Henry Fonda and then she's going to feel bad. And he does find out about her, rejects her. And so then what happens is she decides she's going to get him back, get revenge on him for, for rejecting her. And so she pretends to be a British lady who has come over to the States. Her face is exactly the same. Yeah. Her hair is the same. She wears different clothes. And she puts on this really bogus English accent. But he can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> she just pretends to be a completely different person. And, and he William, falls in love with her again. And William Demarest, who is his right-hand man, his valet or whatever, keeps saying, It's the same dame! <laughs> oh, and he won't. He, he just can't see it. He won't see it. So he falls in love with her again as this character. <laughs> it's just really a turnaround because she's in charge of this situation. And she just runs circles around him. But she's still very sympathetic. 
Yeah. And I mean, she's got a sensuality that's very self-confident. and So she did use her, her, her sensuality as a tool as part of her con, but she was in charge of it. And we discussed this one at length in our Barbara Stanwyck series. Um, so if you want to hear more, more discussion about the Lady Eve, feel free to check that one out. Right. And so now with the Lady Eve, such a gigantic hit that Sturgis can pretty much do what he wants. The next film he's going to do is Sullivan's Travels, right at the peak here. And we are going to uh, start hitting that next episode. Uh, we'll talk about the rest of his, his films and his career. In the meantime, I just urge you to go see The Lady Eve if you haven't seen it. Yeah, incredible film. The scene with uh, Henry Fonda trying to put her shoe on is top scenes. Top, one of the top scenes in Hollywood, in film, ever. Bye, everybody. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand cheese sandwich. Grand-